0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I want us to consider a text found in Titus chapter 2. There's a reading, several verses from the very early part of that chapter that I, I want us to notice together. And there are two or three phrases that I'd like to stress here as I introduce our study tonight. This comes in a very practical section as Paul is instructing Titus with regard to the particular teaching and the particular exhortation that he's to give to various groups here distinguished in terms of age and sex. And so he talks about the aged men and the aged women, the younger women, the younger men. Then he says something to Titus himself. I want you to watch that and watch why it's so important that Titus show himself. An example, a pattern of good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness and gravity. Watch why that's so important. And then I want us to read on down to where Paul talks to the slaves. In our English Bibles, we come across the word servants. And we may think about a domestic servant, or we may think about uh, a lady that comes in to do ironing at a certain time, and that's not what he's talking about. This is different from that word that we talked about on the night that we were talking about deacons and their qualifications and their work. That's the word daakonos. This is the word doulos. And the doulos was a slave. Now, our English Bibles translate that servant. But perhaps an even better translation would be slave, or as some translations render it, bond servant. And Paul talks to the slaves and tells Titus what he's to teach the slaves. And as he does, we have a great text having to do with our influence and the power of example. I want you to watch for things along that line in this reading. And I'll read from a very familiar translation beginning... Chapter 2 of Titus, began with verse 1. But speak thou the things which befit sound doctrine, or which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, or self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, good, keepers at home, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. They be sober, that they be discreet, chaste, Keepers at home or workers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, underscore this, that the word of God be not blasphemed. The younger men, verse 6, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. In all things, showing thyself, Paul now to Titus, the evangelist, working on the island of Crete, show thyself an example or a pattern of good works, In doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now watch this, as we have it here in verse 8. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient, or in the American standard, to be in subjection to their own masters. And to please them in all things, not answering again or not gainsaying, not purloining, not guilty of having sticky fingers, petty thievery, is not to be practiced. But showing all good fidelity, now watch this, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, that they may adorn the doctrine of God. For just a few minutes tonight, I want to think with you about our influence. I hardly know of a better text. There is something that just jumps out at you in these Timothy Titus letters. You have it here. You have it elsewhere in these letters. For example, in 1 Timothy 5 and 14, I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, the younger widows in the American standard, marry, bear children, guide the house, give, now watch this, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Give the adversary no occasion for reviling, the American standard has it. I will that the younger widows marry bear children, guide the house, rule the household, give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Here in Titus 2, the younger women are to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste. Workers or keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That the word of God be not blasphemed. Show yourself, Titus, a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. You see this that comes out repeatedly? There are opponents, there are assailants, the Christian faces antagonist. There are those who would blaspheme the word of God. There are those who would speak reproachfully of the faith and of Christians. There are those who would revile the faith. There are those who are of the contrary part. And Titus, you're so to live, that they might be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. This idea That the opponent, that your antagonist, that the would-be gainsayer may have nothing upon which he might revile or because of which he might speak reproachfully. This is something that comes out in these letters. And from a positive standpoint, here's what to do about it. And it comes in the part of the passage where Paul is talking to slaves. They're to do their work, not gainsaying, not answering again, not purloining but they're to so live and to so work as to adorn the doctrine. Our English word, cosmetics, comes from this word which is translated adorn. The word means to beautify, to embellish, to add luster to. It's a beautiful word and it's a wonderful concept. In this context, Christian slaves, in the larger context of the entirety and totality of New Testament teaching, all Christians are not only with their lips to teach the doctrine, but with their lives they are to adorn the doctrine, that is, to embellish it, to add luster to it. We can't change it. We can't alter it. Galatians 1, 8 and 9, we can't preach another gospel. We're not to go beyond the things that are written, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, 2 John 9, but we can adorn the doctrine with our lives. We can beautify, we can add luster to, that's what that word means. 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10 would speak of the women adorning themselves in modest apparel. And we've stressed the modest part of that, and I think that's needed to be stressed. Discreet and chaste, observing the proprieties of sex, evincing a lack of display. That's really the way this word modest can well be defined. But let's not forget that you also have adorn in the passage. The women are to adorn themselves, and that does mean to beautify. That does mean to embellish. That does mean to add luster to. And we have that word over here in Titus 2 and 10 about adorning the doctrine. So I want you for just a few moments to think with me about your influence. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 2, You are our epistles, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. The next verse finds Paul saying, not written with ink, but with the spirit of a living God. I want to tell you something, brother. What Paul says there to the Corinthians is true of the Abylinians who are Christians right now in the twentieth century? You are his epistle, known and read of all men. You're the only Bible the careless world will read. You're the sinner's gospel. You're the scoffer's creed. You're the Lord's last message, given indeed and word. What if the line is crooked? What if the type is blurred? What if our hands are busy with other work than his? What if our feet are walking? where sin's allurement is. What if our lips are speaking words his lips would spurn? How can we hope to help him unless from him we learn? And that little bit of verse begins, and I left that out. Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. He has no help but our help to bring men to his side. He has no tongues but our tongues to tell men how he died. Let me come back to this. You're the only Bible the careless world will read. You're the sinner's gospel. You're the scoffer's creed. Our world is not inclined to sit down at the quiet of the evening and read the gospel according to Mark. Thrilling 16-chapter account, fast-moving, pictures the power of our Lord, probably particularly with the Roman reader in mind. But people are not reading that. Oh, some are. And there has been in some circles a rekindled interest in the Gospels. There are translations that are particularly readable that have caught the fancy of many people. But you know what I'm saying. By and large, we don't live in a Bible-reading world. John said these things are written that you may believe. John 20, 30, and 31. They are written that you may believe. I'm going to have the strong faith that that can produce, I'll just have to read about these signs that were written that faith might be produced. The result of that being life, signs, faith, life. But a lot of people know not that life because they're not reading the gospel according to John. If they ever do, it may be because they first read the gospel according to you. What do they see there? The gospel according to you. Brethren, let me tell you something. We're in the advertising business. You may not like that terminology. You may not appreciate that kind of expression, but that's the truth of the matter. We're in the advertising business. In advertising, there are some claims that are made and there are promises that are held forth. And in advertising, there are comparisons that are invited and there are comparisons that are made. And so this product is better than brand X, and lots of times we see advertising where it doesn't say brand X, it calls the other brand. You may say, well, that's a little distasteful to me in the area of things spiritual. Well, it was our Lord who said, what do ye more than others? What are you doing more than others? He himself challenged his hearers by that very kind of comparison. So there are claims that are made. And Christianity makes some claims. It claims to give rest and joy, peace and power. But am I just as grouchy and grumbling, just as fearful and vacillating, just as close to collapse as that man who does not know the Lord? If that's so, I'm not a very good advertisement. Paul just sends the word rejoice ringing all through the Philippian letter. But if I'm just as downcast and despondent as that man who doesn't know the Christ, then I'm an awfully poor advertisement. In fact, my advertising will have a negative effect. And this ought to cause us to do just a little bit of introspection and look at the attitudes and the actions and the words that we leave behind, that we lay upon the hearts and lives around us, what kind of impact is it having? What about the comparisons that can be made? Do I show a devotion and dedication that would even approximate that, that would characterize some communist? The The ideology is repugnant to us. But the dedication and the devotion and the commitment is very evident. And while we abhor the system, we have to admit that is great dedication as is seen in some. But the Christian ought to be more committed, ought to be more dedicated. He has espoused the greatest cause. He follows one whose tomb is empty and who can promise ultimate victory even over death itself. I want to mention some areas, some specific areas in which I need to do some growing, in which you need to grow if the impact of our influence is going to be what it ought to be. And let me, as we come to this, impress upon you how crucial this is. You know, I saw something on that signboard a while back that puzzled me. I'd missed out on some things, and I didn't understand that. We love you, Mr. X, sign center. Boy, I didn't understand anything about that. I needed a commentary on all of that. I didn't know who Mr. X was. I didn't know why we were going to... It looked like to me we'd wasted one side of that sign for a week, and I didn't understand it. And then I got a little background on it. We'd had up a sign. I can't quote it, uh, but I do remember the word example was in it, and it said something about example. And Mr. X... Uh, an anonymous commentator who saw fit to communicate, I believe by way of an unsigned letter, said, well, if, what, if that's so, and if that's what you really believe, what about, and he just named off some names. But I'm not going to name off. And so in response to that, On one side of the signboard, there was the question, would you condemn Peter because of Judas? That's a good point, isn't it? You know, if we ought to get out because of hypocrites and turncoats, then the apostles could have left the apostolate because of Judas, and that would have been perfectly all right, been justifiable. Jim Wright said something at the breakfast that the elders have yesterday morning that I thought was pretty good. I'd rather go to church with a few hypocrites than go to hell with all of them. Well, that's pretty good. That makes sense to me. But I'll tell you something. There's some people in our world who have not seen far enough to see that. No, we shouldn't condemn Peter because of Judas. But anyway, we were responding to Brother X or Mr. X or whoever. I don't know whether. I doubt if his brother. Mr. X, I'm sure it would be more accurate. On that signboard. That's not the best way to respond to it. The best way to respond to all those Mr. X's out there in the world is by the unanswerable argument of conduct. I believe we're living in a world that's hungering to see something, a weary, sin-sick world, a world in a society prematurely aged and decrepit, technically and scientifically brilliant, morally and spiritually bankrupt and empty, but hungry, oh, so desperately hungry. And it's really not just doctrine that's wanted, but it's adorning the doctrine. That's what's wanted. You know, we've debated with people about Greek prepositions, as in Acts 2.38, the preposition ace or ice. That's all right. I think that has its place, if some are going to say that means because of, because it doesn't mean that. But that's not the real battlefield today. That's not the place where we get started. That's not where we open doors. That's not where we pave the way for a receptive, responsive reaction to truth. It's with our lives. It's about time we see that. It's about time that we make sure that the quality and the excellence of our lives, the Christ life in us, stands out in a contrast with the world about us as sharply and distinctly as truth stands out in opposition to error and in contrast to error. That's the contrast that needs to be visible. Time passed when we lived in Denver. I used to experience a kind of momentary exhilaration when I'd look out to the west. I could see Mount Evans on a clear day, no trouble to see Pike's Peak. Up to the north could see Long's Peak. Could look out at those beautiful, breathtaking, snow-capped mountains. And sometimes in the evening they'd be etched with such clarity against the evening sky. And with a somewhat similar clarity, Christians ought to stand out. In a world of pessimism, there ought to be a kind of faith and courage and not superficial, shallow optimism, but deep, abiding trust in God that ought to cause us to stand out. In a world of low living, Christians ought to stand out with a high idealism and nobility of purpose and life. In a world in which... The filth of speech, a pollution that poisons us in a deadly way, I think with more devastating consequence than that which just touches the physical environment. In a world where we have so much of that, the Christian ought to stand out. In a world of immodesty, in a world of decadence, in a world to a great extent gone crazy, Christians ought to really stand out. Now having said that, that, let's look at some of these areas. There ought to be a difference in our attitudes, and this ought to be apparent. We ought to have a different attitude toward the material, toward the mundane. Seek first the kingdom and all these things. He's talked about what we shall eat, what we shall drink, what we shall put on, shall be added unto you. Our attitude toward what's really important, toward position, that ought to be different. It ought to be apparent that we will not succumb and that we have not to that standard that pervades our world. Our attitude and concept toward true greatness ought to stand out by contrast. It's not the monarch who wades through blood to his throne, but it's that one who is the servant of all. He's the one who's greatest of all. There are going to be some surprises on judgment day. And some unheralded and unsung saints, some men and some women who quietly serve the Lord, will be seen to be the great ones. There's so many ways in which our attitudes, as we, Colossians 3 1, seek those things that are above, and set our minds on things that are above, ought to be seen as different. Our actions ought to be different. There's so much today that's down dragging that puts the emphasis upon the low and the base, the sensual and the Christian ought to carefully and discreetly live in such a way that he doesn't contribute to that. Only recently I was involved in a kind of counseling situation involving no one in this town at all, but in an area quite a bit removed geographically. gross immorality, suicide attempts involved. And there's one question that comes to your mind and trembles on your lips and you really don't want to ask it. Is this person a member of the church? Or are these people? And whenever that's the case, the cause has been heard. And how many times has the presentation of truth, biblically accurate, scripturally correct, almost perfect in linguistic presentation, how often has it been drowned out by the noise of malpractice? And how often have people, in effect, said, We can't hear what you're saying because we see what you're doing and how you're living? And there's one area I particularly want to stress, and that's our speech. Now I've been on the school grounds and I've been in the locker rooms and I may not know from personal experience how it is in the plant where you work or wherever it may be, but none of us live really sheltered lives today. And you know and I know because none of us are so naive and none of us are so deaf at what we're aware of it that there is a deadening din of profanity and obscenity and vulgarity crudity in speech that comes down daily upon our ears. May it not be so among Christians. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of thy mouth. Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 4, about verse 29, no corrupt communication. And whenever a professed Christian talks like that, you can mark it down, the cause is suffering. And yes, I'd rather go to church with a few hypocrites than go to hell with all of them. That's true. But there's somebody in that plant or in that school or wherever it may be that's not looking at it that way and he's saying, that's my out. And if that fellow is a member of the church, if he's a Christian, I want no part of it. Live this way, Titus, why? Live this way, younger widows, why? Older men, aged women, young women, young men, slaves. Live this way, why? That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. No evil thing to say. Live this way, why? That the word of God be not blasphemed. Live this way, why? In order that that one who is of the contrary part may not speak reproachfully. We need to be conscious of that. I believe there is an excellence that's attainable, not in human power, but in the power of the indwelling Christ. And yet that doesn't invalidate our will or rule out the need for discipline. I believe it's time for us to begin to bridle our tongues, to be careful of what we say, To learn to be, this has always been hard for me. It's much easier to just impulsively blurt out the thing you're first of all thinking. But the Word still says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. James 1.18 Slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Slow to speak. Let's bridle our tongues. Let's re-examine our attitudes. Let's look carefully at the way we're living. Let's resolve that we'll adorn from a word in the language of the New Testament from which comes our English word cosmetics, beautify, embellish, add luster to, cause the doctrine to stand forth in all its beauty because it's complemented by life, it's correlated with life. It's not just a matter of discourses but deeds, not just a matter of preaching but practice Not just with our lips, but with our lives. Because our world is saying, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one would walk with me than merely point the way. I believe it was in eulogy of John Temple Graves that some words I want to use were spoken. I've used these words before and always when I think of influence, I think of them. I've seen the light of a giant engine rushing into the night, heedless of opposition, fearless of danger, and I thought that was grand. I've seen the light that flashed at midnight athwart the storm-swept sky, shimmering over chaotic cloud, till cloud and tree and shadow-haunted earth flashed into midday splendor. And I thought that was grand. I've seen the light that rises o'er the eastern hills in glory, driving the lazy darkness before it till leaf and tree and blade of grass glittered in the myriad diamonds of the morning ray. And I knew that was grand. But the grandest light, the greatest light, other than the very radiance that flows from the Almighty's throne, is the light of a noble and beautiful life which, wrapping itself in benediction about the destinies of men, finds its home in the bosom of the everlasting God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Ye are the light of the world. And this world so dark, John writes, the whole world lieth in the evil one. This world so dark, with the deep, almost impenetrable darkness about us, ominous clouds on the horizon. This world so dark needs the bright, the brilliant light of lives that had, have been changed and are being changed by the Christ. That's the way to win the unbeliever. That's the way the Christian woman, First Peter chapter 3, the early verses, is to win her unbelieving husband, that he without a word may be won by the manner of life of the wife while they behold their chaste manner of life coupled with fear. That's the way that leaders are to lead, not as lords over God's heritage, but as examples to the flock. That's the way Titus is to teach and to preach and to work as an example of good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness. Why? Because the thing we all want is a demonstration. Show me how. Don't just tell me. And that's what we need. And when our word, are complemented by our works and when what we say with our lips is confirmed and is demonstrated and exemplified in our lives, then the evangelistic thrust of the church will take on an altogether different meaning and doors will be open, and hearts will be open, because, believe me, while there are some people who could care less about arguing about some Greek prepositions... They want a different kind and quality of life. They'd like to gain some victory over fear. They'd like to have some sure and certain hope beyond this life. They'd like to have some great cause to give their own hearts and lives to. And Christianity answers the hungers of the heart. And what we need to do is not stand between that man and the doctrine but rather adorn the doctrine and open the way that the doctrine, that the word, that the gospel might enter. You're here tonight outside of Christ. We're praying and pleading in your behalf. You're here and you're a Christian and you need to come back home and right your influence and begin to seek first the kingdom. We're concerned about you. You want to become a part of this great and good and growing congregation. We'd want you to do that and urge you to do that. We'd urge you to come right now while we stand, while we sing.